How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. This podcast features David M. Rubenstein in conversation with Tom Brokaw. Tom, thank you very much for coming. And uh, when you were growing up in South Dakota, did you ever think that you would one day be the most prominent person in the broadcast world? You'd be living in New York. You'd get the Presidential Medal of Freedom. No, uh, I hoped to get to Minneapolis, actually, uh, before I got to New York. I couldn't get a job in Minneapolis, so I had to come to New York, it turns out. <laughs> I grew up in a, uh, in a real prairie culture. Both my parents uh, came from uh, poor stock. And my dad's side, very poor stock. Uh, his grandfather had gone west after the Civil War and established a tiny town in northern South Dakota and built a, a very hard, kind of hard scrabble railroading hotel there, a large family. My dad was uh, 10 years old when the family effectively kind of walked away from him. He was on his own because everybody had to be at that stage. But he was a man of great resourcefulness. He had some learning disabilities in terms of reading, but if you had a mechanical piece in front of him. Uh, if it was broken, he could fix it and he could operate anything. And he took that and made it into a real skill set as a heavy equipment operator in construction and wisely courted my mother, who came from the other end of the spectrum. She was from an Irish-American family. They were farmers. They were college-educated, many of them. And I'd often say to mother, how did the two of you get together? And she really didn't have an answer, except as so many cases of relationships, it was intuitive. She took care of the kind of civilized part of the family with three boys and introduced us to books and, and good culture. My dad taught us how to do everything. Not that I did it very well, but he was there and made sure that we had the kind of hands-on experience that we would need. Were you a high school student athlete or a scholar or what were you in high school? Well, I was kind of everything in high school. Uh, when I moved to this high school in 1955, I moved around a lot because we were in big construction jobs. It was a big town of Yankton, South Dakota. It was one of the bigger towns in the state. It was about 9,000 population at the time. I was a little overwhelmed by the size of the high school, but I was an athlete. I was a better basketball player than I was anything else. We had very competitive teams. I was active in student politics. I've often said I was among a small group of people in South Dakota recruited to take SAT tests, which couldn't get in South Dakota. You had to go to Minneapolis. There were five of us because Harvard allegedly was interested in us. So I've often spoken at Harvard, and I say I was one of those people who Harvard took a look at and decided that I wasn't up to their standards. So I've had to go through the rest of my life wondering what might have happened to me if I'd only had a Harvard education. Uh, Originally went to the University of Iowa. Went to the University of Iowa, went pretty much off the rails. Uh, I was kind of a whiz kid coming out of high school, thought I could just continue my success story. 
had a very good time. I didn't flunk out, but I didn't do very well. And so I, I left. I was going to go back. That didn't work because Meredith and I got together. But Iowa has uh, stayed in touch with me, and it's been very gratifying. They have a wonderful school, one of those great Big Ten institutions, and a sensational library that they built about 10 years ago after a flood took out their old library. So they have a postmodern library. They've taken all my papers, and they have a Tom Brokaw section built around the greatest generation. And that's been very gratifying. And my friends from my freshman year just look at me and laugh and say, who would have thought, Tom? Right. So after your freshman year, you went back to, to, you went to the University of South Dakota? I went to the University of South Dakota, but I continued my wayward ways. I, you know, I dropped out for a while in 1960, a very exciting time in America. I was wandering around the Midwest working as a disc jockey. My parents were very concerned about why I had kind of gone off the road. I thought I was fooling everybody. Meredith and I were not involved at that time at all, but uh, she met my mother and she was so distressed with my mother's anxiety that she wrote me a very harsh letter saying, no one can understand what you're up to. We're very disappointed. I don't want to see you again. This is uh, not what anyone could have expected of you or something to that effect. And it was a turnaround. She got my attention and I got my act together. All right. So you graduated from the University of South Dakota. And then did you want to go into the highest calling of mankind, private equity? Or what did you want to do? <laughs> well, we got married and I didn't even have a job the summer that we were getting married. And Meredith was kind of all everything in South Dakota. So this is a match that surprised her friends and my friends. And I got a job, a starter job in Omaha, Nebraska, $100 a week. The apartment was... I don't know, $200 a month? Yeah, something like that. It was a terrible basement apartment. I remember that. Meredith got a teaching job, which helped. Anyhow, I, I learned a lot there in two years, and I got picked up unexpectedly by the biggest, most important station in the South, WSB in Atlanta. And that led me to leaving the station at 1130 at night, getting on a charter airplane, flying to wherever all hell was breaking out on the civil rights movement until NBC could get its own correspondence there. And after six months in Atlanta, NBC came and said, we want you to come to California. And that led me to California and NBC. Had you ever been to California really before? I had not been there since I was 10 years old. And the interesting thing is I flew out in the summer of 1965 and California was not attractive in August in those days. It was smoggy and ugly and the topless bars around. And we were living in Atlanta, which we loved a lot. And so I turned them down, and they thought I was a very clever negotiator. So they kept bumping up the salary and more opportunities. And our first child was born, and then we went to California, and it was a magical move for us. I arrived just in time to start covering Ronald Reagan running for governor of California. That was my first assignment at age 26, just having arrived there. Did you think he was going to get elected? I did think he was going to get elected governor. Um, I didn't know at that point that he would go as far as he did because he was still a little uneasy as a politician. I had watched him before when he was working for GE and doing other organized events. Very skillful performer, but he was not used to the press corps coming after him and questioning him and, and challenging him on things. But I've always said that the big secret, I thought, to Ronald Reagan was that he exuded a sense of optimism and cheerfulness. And the working class communities that had been traditionally Democrat in Southern California were tired of the students 
uh, protesting all day, every day. They were getting a free education. There was no tuition at the university in those days. And they wanted to burn down the schools and they were using a lot of profanity. And Ronald Reagan spoke for that crowd, for those people who didn't have college educations. And after about nine months in office, there was a really smart politician on the Democratic side by the name of Jess Unruh, who was the head of the state legislature, the speaker. And he was as canny a guy as I've ever met. And I said to him, what do you think? He said, this SOB is a lot smarter than we realized. And he said, we can do business with him because he knows how to do business. And that's when I really began to have an idea that maybe he could go all the way. Well, actually, uh, Jess Unruh, when I was working in the Carter White House, Carter was running for re-election. Jess Unruh came and said, be careful what you wish for. Don't wish you're going to run against Ronald Reagan. He's very good. And did you get to know Ronald Reagan any? I did, although there were two Ronald Reagans. The Ronald Reagan that you saw in public, that cheerful bonhomie that he would have when he would, uh, you know, raise his hand and salute everybody and throw his arms around folks. And then the private Ronald Reagan was very, very private. Nancy, who I got to know very well, said to me at one point, there are times when I don't know what's going on with Ronnie. I think it had something to do with his childhood. His dad was a terrible drunk and he got to a promised place. And then he really embraced being a thespian, being an actor. He knew what he needed to do. And he did it very, very skillfully. Uh, the last interview that he gave in the Oval Office was to me on the Friday before he left. And it was very carefully orchestrated. I frankly think at the very end that he was beginning to lose some of his abilities. So there was, they said, you know, he'll sit down at 1130, you got to finish right at noon. He'll thank the crew, he'll thank you. Then he wants to take you out onto the veranda. So the interview went very well. It was about his childhood and how he was formed as a person, how he learned to read and what his aspirations were. And then when it was over, he said, Tom, let's go out to the Rose Garden. I said, very good, Mr. President, let's do that. So we go out on the Rose Garden and we're standing there and suddenly a photographer appeared. And he said, you know, Tom, Nancy and I were talking about it this morning. You were there from the very beginning, weren't you? And I said, I was, Mr. President put his arm around me and the camera started clicking. He said, worked out pretty well for both of us. So in your career, you're in L.A., you're happily living in L.A. Um, all of a sudden, NBC says, come and cover the White House. Did you want to do that? Not particularly. I'd always wanted to cover the White House, but it was also in the middle of Watergate, and Dan Rather had a big head of steam at that point, and they were bringing me in to, to kind of not just cover the White House, but to stand up against Dan. And we had just built a house on the beach about nine months earlier that had taken a long time to do on every dime that we had. I had a great life in California because I would cover national politics from there. I would go to the conventions. Then I could go back to my good life in California. Meredith had a wonderful life out there. In fact, when we left, she really had some reluctance about doing it and then arrived in, uh, in Washington, D.C. in the middle of August. We'd been living on the beach in this beautiful house. And she arrives in Washington, D.C. looking for a rental in the middle of August. That was not the best introduction. But then we quickly made a lot of friends there. So when you were covering Watergate, did you actually think Nixon would ever resign? I thought he was guilty. And I think that uh, almost all of us in the White House press corps did. And I talked to a friend of mine the other day who was my kind of partner. Everybody kind of twinned up because the consequences were so enormous and, uh, and you had to check everything. And so... My friend was a chess master from the Wall Street Journal, 
a really wonkish little guy, fabulous reporter. And here I was, a big television guy, not a chess player, but we shared information and, and tried things out on each other to make sure that we had it right. And about once a month, we could get out of there and go over and have a hamburger. And they would have done something that day. And I would say something like, Fred, it doesn't make any sense about what they've done today. And he'd say, until you remember, he's guilty. And I said, oh, yeah, then it makes sense. But, but the interesting thing is, we didn't go public with that. I didn't, at 7 o'clock at night, when I'd finished nightly news, I'd get on the phone and start working the sources for the Today Show the next morning. Now, if I got off at 7 o'clock during Watergate, Chris Matthews would be saying, it doesn't make any sense what he did today, does it, Tom? I mean, it would be, there would be a lot of opinion that would be coming into it. And I'm not picking on Chris. It's just the nature of the beast. And the other thing that happened in those days is that the uh, print press was still, they really defined the culture. Uh, I had a couple of mentors, a wonderful reporter from Chicago by the name of Peter Lissagor, who was the best reporter, in my judgment, in Washington, could cover everything. And he kind of put his arm around me early on and, and, and said, you know, you've got to take a deep breath a lot of times. Just don't go with what the early speculation is. And then, of course, I think that uh, Ben and Carl and Bob Woodward really also set the pace because everything they did was so airtight. It was not speculation. They'd nail it. Then it would be in the paper. So you're doing the evening news. You do your, your part from the White House, and then Dan Rather's doing his part for CBS. Did you ever worry that he had a scoop over you, or did you, your bosses ever call you and say, he has something, how come you don't have it? Oh, sure. I, but I, I caught up pretty quickly, in part because there was just so much going on that it was hard to get something that was a big scoop of some kind. Uh, Dan did get the story of Nixon having phlebitis. That was a big story. I had a big story about two weeks after I was there of how the White House was continuing to manipulate reaction to the president's speeches by getting in touch with the National Association of Manufacturers and the banking and so on, claiming that they had never done that. And I stumbled across a memo outlining their plan for doing it. And that, that was front page the next day. So I have a highest regard for Dan as a working reporter. I mean, he was a tough, smart guy. And then we had the two of us had the last exchanges with Nixon uh, in the White House. One of them was Dan just before me. And that was the famous one in which he asked the question of the president before the National Association of Broadcasters. And it got a lot of applause, that question. And uh, before he answered, just the preamble. And Nixon said, are you running for something, Mr. Rather? And Dan sharply and mistakenly said, no, sir, are you? And then there was a lot of booing. I was on right after that. And my question, I had worked on for two weeks. And I thought, oh, God, nobody's going to be paying attention to this. And my question pivoted around the fact that Nixon claimed that he had executive privilege even during impeachment proceedings. And we went to Yale and all the major uh, law schools in America, and even the conservative constitutional scholars said, no, that's not true. In times of impeachment, you do not have executive privilege. So I asked the president, and that turned out to be the last question that was ever asked. Did you ever get a one-on-one -on -one interview? Or he didn't do one-on-one -on -one interviews in those days? I didn't do one-on-one -on -one with him in those days. The first press conference that I went to, um, he... That was the one that you still see it played a lot. I can't remember. The question was from Bob Pierpoint. I get the impression you don't like us, Mr. President. He said, 
you cannot like people that you don't respect. That was the first news conference that I went to. That was the tension that went on there. Now, having said all that, when he left office, he was working to reclaim his, uh, reclaim his place. And I've left out an important part of my California days. Bob Haldeman, I knew well before he went to the White House and worked for Nixon. And after they'd been there for about a year, it wasn't working out well with, with Ron Ziegler. So uh, Haldeman sent an emissary to try to get me to be the Nixon press secretary. It's a little known fact. Wow. I'm, Just I, think how famous you could be. I, I almost threw up in my lunch when the guy put it before me. And I was not going to do this. And I had, I, we kept it very quiet. And apparently Haldeman never, ever gave up on it. And, uh, but the guy that he designated as his emissary said he's just not going to do this. So I turned 50, and they sent camera crews around, uh, NBC did, uh, around New York. And one of the camera crews came back, their eyes were about this big, and they said, you're not going to believe what we've got on tape. And we put in the player, and there was Richard Nixon in his blue suit and his flag, in Richard Nixon-like fashion, saying... Uh, I want to wish happy birthday to Tom Brokaw. I've always believed he was a man of very good judgment. He never showed better judgment than when he turned down my offer to be my press secretary. <laughs> well, you can't beat that. So now you're finished Washington. NBC says, why don't you come and be the host of today's show? Did you want to pick up and move to New York and get up at four in the morning or not? I liked the Today Show because of the range. I'd actually had an earlier offer to do the Today Show, but in those days, you, the host still had to do the commercials, and it was a, it had no competition. That was the rise of Barbara Walters. I was enormously fond of her and had a lot of respect for her. So they brought me up at that point uh, as a tryout with a lot of other NBC correspondents, and I had a good week. It went well, Barbara and I got along. I had some kind of good lines, and I had stuff going on at the White House. And at the end of the week, they said, we'd like you to do the Today Show. And I said, not going to do it. If I have to do Elpo ads, I'm not going to do this. And they said, well, it comes to the territory, and it pays a lot of money. I said, I understand. I'm in the story of a life at the Watergate, and I'm not going to do that. Then what happened is, obviously, Nixon resigns. I'm still a White House correspondent. And they needed to make a change in the morning. And so they came to me and said, you have to do this. You don't have to do the commercials. But if you, we want you to do nightly news at some point. And this is the stepping stone to doing nightly news. And you do have to get up at 4 in the morning to do that show. Is that right? Or more or less? I did the Today Show in a slightly different fashion than it's done now. I brought with me my political credentials and my determination to do that. ABC was starting with David Hartman, and they were very good. They gave us a lot of competition because the Today Show was kind of on autopilot at that point. But then that was, which quickly became the year of Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter running against each other. And preceding that, shots had been fired at the Holy Father in Rome. Sadat had been murdered in Egypt. And whenever anything happened in the world, I would get on the next airplane out of town and go there. So I brought a kind of sense of urgency in the morning to whatever was going on, wherever it was going on, and that got us back into number one again. So you did that for how many years? Um, I did it for five years. Five years, and then they said it's your time to be the head of the uh, I was gonna, news? Yeah, I was going to leave, and I don't mean to sound immodest about this, but 
there was a lot of uh, movement in the three networks at that point. Rune Arledge had come to ABC. He was trying to hire Dan. He was trying to hire me. And CBS was trying to change things around as well. So there were a lot of offers out there. And I wanted to stay at NBC. I had grown up on Huntley Brinkley. That's the only place I really wanted to work. Roger Mudd had come from CBS at that point to NBC with one of his former bosses because he was angry about Dan getting the job at CBS. And so Roger and I started as a team for a year, and it was uh, notably unsuccessful. It just didn't work for a lot of reasons. And the uh, NBC decided that they would stay with me. I was younger. I'd been an NBC person for a long time, and it was a very difficult time for Roger, obviously. So you're the... uh the sole head of the NBC Evening News. And in that context, you did a number of exclusive interviews. And you, for example, you had, I think, one of the first interviews with Gorbachev. What was that like? The first interview with Gorbachev. There was a big um, hot chase for that one. We had a fabulous guy working for us by the name of Gordon Manning, who was an old newspaper and magazine guy. And uh, he had a friend in the Politburo in, in Moscow. And we poured more scotch down those members of the Politburo and, <laughs> and treated them in a more prime rib than the best hotels in London or wherever we were in the world. Everybody was trying to get Gorbachev. And Gordon's connection paid off, and I got it. And it was the weekend before Thanksgiving. So I flew over there to, uh, to do the interview. Gorbachev was, we had seen him on television a lot at that point. And he was more winning even in person. He was very engaging, unlike anybody we'd ever seen in the Russian leadership. And we were putting microphones on him, and they were putting their microphones on him. And the typical Russian in those days, it looked like a, a, a bronze version of a clenched fist. It was just really ugly. So I, I was changing it. And I, I saw him staring at me, and I said, oh, Mr. Gorbachev, through the interpreter, you must understand, I have to do this in my job every day. And he looked at me and he said, you will not believe what I have to do in my job every day. <laughs> and we became, as a result of that, we developed a real strong personal relationship. I haven't seen him for a while, but after he was dispatched from office, he came to New York. We had an evening with him, Meredith and I did with some friends at the Waldorf. I always see him when he comes to town. I think he was one of the most important figures of the 20th century. He doesn't get the credit that he deserves, but he did change the world because he brought down the Soviet system, he hung on to the communist philosophy, the idea that that ideology could stay in place too long. He has a very quick wit, and I'll just tell you one story. When he came to the Kennedy School once, uh, he was asked by a student, how would the world be different if Nikita Khrushchev had been assassinated in November 1963 and not John Kennedy? And without missing a beat, he said, well, you can't really say how history would change over 30 years. But one thing you can say for certain is that Aristotle Onassis would not have married Mrs. Khrushchev. <laughs> the Berlin Wall. You were there when the Berlin Wall went down. So what was that like? Well, it was not as prescient as I'd like people to believe that it was. It was a Monday in New York, and we had a very good foreign editor by the name of Jerry Lamprecht. He came to me and said, you know, there's not much going on here in this country. He said, they're starting to, you know, they're putting a lot of pressure on Czechoslovakia by going out through that gate. And he said, I think we can get into East Germany. Why don't you go and just see what happens? So I said, that's a great idea. And I uh, flew overnight to Berlin. And in fact, the next day, I went through Truck Point Charlie without any trouble at all and did a lot of taping and the kind of new, but not 
complete optimism that you could see in East Germany at that point, East Berlin. And we went on the air that night, but I taped it because I said, there's no reason to burn all that money on a satellite feed. I don't have any that urgent. But we had a satellite order. Now, this is a technical difference between then and now and how a big scoop happened. We kept the satellite order up for the next night as well. You couldn't just do it on a moment's notice. And so the next day, I went back into East Berlin again, and it was uh, there was a lot of anxiety about what was going to happen, but there was nothing that was coming to fruition. And at 4 o'clock that afternoon, there was a man. He was actually the propaganda chief for the East, and he had a press conference, and he was a typical bureaucrat in those days. And he was muttering through things, and the East Germans were very unhappy. And they finally handed him a piece of paper, and he read it, and he said, oh, he said, now it is all possible the Politburo has decided for members of the GDR to go out through any gate in the wall and then come back. And it was a misinterpretation of what the GDR Politburo had handed him, the paper. They wanted him to apply for visas, and then you have to tell when you're coming back. He, in effect, opened the wall, not knowing it. That was broadcast across East Germany. It turns out later that the whole Politburo had gone home and gone to bed. And so they were unaware of all this anxiety that was happening. I went up and interviewed him, and I said, read that again for me. And he read it for me, and I said, it means the wall is down. He said, yes, Doc, that's what it means, the wall is down. So we put that on the air. And it got quickly out of control. People started gathering at all the bridges and all the openings and everything. We had the satellite ready. I called New York, and I said, the Berlin Wall is down. This is a historic moment. So we blew out the lights on everything, and I went out to the uh, Brandenburg Gate, and uh, the West German students were on top of the wall yelling at the East German students, come over, come over. East German students were not persuaded that that was the safest thing to do. There were guards on the other side. They were hosing down people. And then at one point, they hosed down everybody except one guy who was standing on the wall. He had a leather jacket, and he big smile on his face. He had his back to the water hoses. And I said to one of my colleagues, Martin Fletcher, go get him. I can see him on Time Magazine next week, the new face of freedom in Germany. Martin came back about 30 seconds later. I said, not quite what we think. And I said, what do you mean? He said, he's a drunk. He's been living in the forest. <laughs> and he said, this is, a, this is the first shower he's had in two weeks. So I don't think we want to put him on there. Let's talk about your writing career. Uh, after you retired, you uh, wrote a book called uh, the Greatest Generation. And where did you get that title, and where did you get the idea for writing that book? Well, I remember World War II. I was born in 1940, and we lived on an Army base right away. And to my dad, I was thinking about this the other day, he would go on these projects in New Brighton, Minnesota. Well, he was building an ammunition factory, and then he was in Hayes, Kansas. He was building an airfield for military use before we got involved in the war. That was Roosevelt getting things in place. So I was racing around the country as a top with my parents, and then we ended up in an army base in southwestern South Dakota where they were uh, storing ammunition and testing it 24-7. And so everybody around me was going to war, coming home from war. I wore a helmet, you know, when I was three years old. And I just thought it would always be there. And then it wasn't. And then I caught the post-war wave of uh, good jobs for our parents and thinking about sending us to college. And my dad bought the very first new car. I'll never forget a bare-bone Chevrolet. And my mother had appliances that she never expected to have. And then I caught my own wave personally and had these good jobs. And I went to Normandy 
for the 40th anniversary of D-Day. The first day that I was there, I walked onto the beach with two guys from Pennsylvania with the Big Red One, First Division. I had to help one of them uh, across the sand dunes. He'd lost both legs just before the war ended. The other one had earned a Medal of Honor. We were right where they landed, and they both looked at each other and said, we came ashore right there. I said, That's right. I said, what do you remember? They said, remember the, the ramp went down, and then our first sergeant and our lieutenant were shot through the head. We were 18 years old, and we'd only been in basic training, and we had to go on to the middle of this onslaught. And they were very calm but very moved by it. And God, I was beginning to tear up, and then they decided... They described how they were behind a tank trap, and they said a colonel came running down the beach. His name was Jack Taylor, I think I've got it right, who actually was quite famous for that day. He would lean over these terrified young American combatants, and he would say, man, there are two kinds of people on the beach, the dead and those about to be dead. you got to get up and get moving right now. And he saved a lot of lives by doing that. I was so shaken by that, I went back to lunch and Sam Gibbon, who was a congressman from Florida, came over to me with a brass clicker that he had, and he clicked it, and he said, Tom, Sam Gibbon, I said, I know who you are. What are you doing here? And he said, I landed here 40 years ago. I was a lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne. And then he told this harrowing tale about being behind enemy lines, thinking the invasion had failed, terrified, putting together a squad. He began to cry, and his wife came over and said, I've never heard these stories before. So that was the genesis of it. And I began to collect these stories, David. And then 10 years later, I used the phrase for the first time. I think it's the greatest generation anybody ever produced. And were you shocked at the book's success? I mean, it became the number one bestseller. It's been... uh... Yeah, they couldn't print it fast enough. Random House, uh, they were printing all over the world at one point. I can't remember the exact number of about how many were being sold every 10 minutes. It just touched a huge nerve. And it it was written in 1998, and this is not an exaggeration. Meredith is my witness. I can't go anywhere in America without three or four times a week people coming up to me and saying, I love the greatest generation. Most of them now are second generation talking about what they learned about their parents. So I, I, I really do think I'm as proud of that as anything I've ever done professionally. Uh, as you look back on an extraordinary career, what would you say you are most proud of having achieved? Well, I think I'm most proud of, uh, from a professional point of view, of having gotten it right uh, for the most part. And when I didn't get it right, I was quick to say, you know, we could have done better. Or this is a, another way of looking at it. And then when you uh, mix the two of them, uh, the personal life and the professional life, uh, you know, I think I'm most proud of the fact that I have these fabulous daughters and sons-in-law and grandchildren and Meredith, that we've come through all these different layers and we're still talking to each other. And it's, um, you know, that's what I stand back and look at that and think, my God, this is a long way from Yankton, South Dakota. Thank you for a great career and thank you for being with you. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.